0: and to support us all to raise our children with more awareness, connection, and love. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Aware Parenting Stories podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Suzanne Ziedeich, who is a research scientist fascinated by babies' innate capacity to communicate. Suzanne, thank you so much for making time to come and talk to us all. It is so exciting to be with you. (laughs) So I'll just introduce you briefly before we start. Since 1993, Suzanne has been based at the University of Dundee in Scotland within the School of Psychology, where she now holds an honorary post. In 2011, she stepped away from full-time academic work in order to set up her own independent training enterprise to disseminate what she calls the science of connection. Human beings are born connected, and as a species, we have a physiological need for emotional connection in order to lead happy, healthy lives. Suzanne thought the public deserved to understand the science that gives depth to these insights. In 2014, she expanded her reach by founding the organization Connected Baby, which enabled her team to create events and resources that support her message. Suzanne brings to her work an awareness of the latest discoveries on infant communicative capacities and brain development, as well as her own research expertise on parent-infant relationships and the socio-political context within which scientific information emerges. Amazing. Thank you so much. So that sounds I, impressive. <laughs> it does sound very impressive, yes. Um. So I'd love to start off by asking you a little bit about exactly this what you're sharing about you know what is it that you think it's important for us to understand about babies and about what they're capable of and about what they need in order to thrive because of course like bolby's work is is 50 60 years old and now of course there is an, a language around trauma and so on in our culture but it still seems to be so misunderstood Of thoughts and understandings about babies still seem to be very far away from what we now know to be true in in scientific circles.
1: Oh, Joss, those are fascinating questions. So as a developmental psychologist, which means that I study human development, my expertise, my training, my research experience was with babies. And I think babies are fascinating that human beings come into the world already physiologically, biologically, neurologically, connected to other people. We're wired for social connection. And although the science has been telling us that for a century or more, that information, in my experience, has not really made it out to the public. So as a scientist who was helping to discover some of that information and who had access to all of that research that helps us to make sense of this idea that we're born connected, I began to realize that the public didn't have access to that information. And as you said in that introduction, I thought they deserved to. And I really mean that. Okay, if I, as a scientist, I'm discovering things about babies that parents don't have access to and health visitors and early years workers and teachers and social workers and grandparents and aunts and uncles and the managers of supermarkets where children have meltdowns. If those people don't have access to that information, what am I doing it for? So what happened to me after about a career of about 25 years as a scientist was that I began to get really frustrated by this dilemma that I didn't think this the science was reaching the wider public. And after a bit, it became a moral question for me. if if it could not reach the public, I needed to do something about that. And so in two thousand and eleven, I stepped away from a full-time academic career which is ironic given that I had spent my whole life wanting to be an academic since I was a little girl. But I stepped away from that in order to figure out how you translated this information for the public. And I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it because people are fascinated by it. If you can make that information, if you can offer it in a form that doesn't feel scary and doesn't contain big, scary words, because very often science has big, scary words in it, If you can give examples that are relevant to people's lives, then then they can put it in place. They can apply it. And if you can give them some sense of the feeling that goes with it, so when my voice lifts and I talk about how fascinating it is, then people know that they have a permission to be fascinated. I think that one of our struggles is that so often when this information is released to parents, it's done with a tone of judgment. And that leads to shame. There's a lot of blaming involved with it. And so parents, in my experience, really want to know this stuff. But the tone in which it's delivered really, really matters. And I think that that's a problem for us today. So I try hard in my work to talk about babies rather than about parenting so that people can step in with curiosity to learn more, to see what there is to see about babies rather than to turn the focus on themselves where people are very likely to judge themselves.
0: Wow, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I love I love that you are so clearly very passionate, not only in terms of what you can see babies being capable of and how fascinating they are, but also the way to share this information in a way that is receivable then by people without that sense of judgment, without that shaming and blaming that is so often directed at parents. And I'd love to ask you, you why do you think it is that this is so misunderstood? Why do you think that there are still so many loud voices in our culture that are telling parents things that are just not true and now known not to be true about what babies need? I think the answer to that is because cultural
1: change is scary. So when I left the university as a scientist, I had this idea that all I needed to do was to find ways to translate knowledge, to tell people information that they might not know. Because we didn't always know that babies are so connected. Even the scientists did not know that. We've learned a tremendous amount in the last 20 years. and. And a lot of this we did not know before the 1970s because the technology didn't allow us to do that. We didn't have the cameras and the film capacity uh, that exploded in the 1970s. And Bowlby was doing work in the 1930s, but we didn't have the capacity to do some of that research in depth, and we couldn't communicate that to the public. So what I'm trying to say is it's true that we have known this stuff for a while, but we didn't always know it. Okay, now that we know it, I thought I just needed to find ways to make that information accessible. I have learned that I was naive. I was wrong about that. In my decade or more working with the public, I've learned something much more important. It's one thing to know this stuff. It's another thing to feel what it's like to know this stuff. And so I now understand that realizing that babies are connected to you, that the way you treat them, the way you talk to them, the look you have on your face, when you got tired last night, when you lost it and you shouted, when your ratio in a nursery is such that Adults can't give full attention to children. When you start to really get that, it's deeply unsettling because you start to realize how important you are. And you start to see yourself in a new light. And you start to see the way you have treated children in a new light. And it's very likely to prompt shame and guilt and reflections that you didn't know you needed to make. And it's uncomfortable. So, the tone in which it's delivered really, really matters. Paying attention to what it feels like to learn this stuff really, really matters. And so, one of the reasons that I think it hasn't been put into place is that the scientists and the policymakers and the probably people in charge of organizations that direct practice and we, ha- we all of us, those people, the professionals, have not paid enough attention to what it feels like for parents to hear this stuff. So mm-hmm. I hold us accountable. But maybe part of why we haven't done that is that it has the same impact professionally. So when a when a doctor learns that they told parents that babies in NICU uh, wouldn't remember any of this stress, when they come to understand the science of connection and they realize that that wasn't true, then they have feelings about themselves. As a, as a doctor, as a professional. And I know lawyers and teachers and social workers, all of which have to reevaluate that. And if it's too uncomfortable and we can't tolerate what we've realized that we've done, then we have to shut that down. We have to step into denial. So I found myself talking a lot about denial these days about why it serves us, makes us feel better, about who we are, makes total sense but it doesn't help our children. So I think as professionals, as people who want to make change, as people who get it, as parents who've been able to travel that journey and got to the other side of shame and guilt, because it's entirely possible to do, as long as you have some help with that, I think you need something called fierce curiosity, which really helps you through that unsettled time. I think if we could better understand the function of denial, we would understand why a lot of this information
0: is resisted. Mm. Yeah. That's fascinating too. So what do we now know about babies? What would you think is most helpful for for parents to know? Oh, another
1: great question. Three things, Mm. I think. One is babies arrive already connected to other people. And I can spend hours just helping like, Reflecting, like it becomes fascinating to think, what does that mean? So, let me give an example, which is likely to be uncomfortable. In the womb, babies can already hear the voices of the people around them. Is that not fascinating? So, a baby is born already knowing who's in their tribe. They know the sound of their mother's voice because she's there all the time. If daddy's there every day, or the other is there every day, then they know those voices. If auntie or grandma or uncle or granddad or big brother or big sister, whoever is there on an everyday basis, the baby can hear those voices and the sound of that voice gets woven into the neural pathways in their brain. And I'm like pointing to my forehead as I say this for us to think, oh my God, that's woven into the way the baby's brain is developing before they're born. And so when they're born and you speak to them, basically the baby goes, oh, hey, oh, I recognize your voice. I've been waiting to meet you. That's what your face looks like. The baby remembers you. It's remarkable when you have time to think about it. It's profound. It's profound. Babies know who is going to be in the world. So realizing that that's what connection means is profound. I really think it is profound to think that that is how wired for connection we are. Yeah. Okay. If that sounds fascinating, I'm delighted. If you can think, oh my gosh, the baby knows my the sound of my laughter. The baby knows the songs I've been singing. So I think that's really profound. The babies come into the world with the capacity for connection already woven into their biology. That means that if you get that idea, you can go, oh my gosh, the baby knows the sound of my laughter. The baby knows the sound of the songs I've been singing. Oh my goodness, the baby knows the sounds of the soap opera that I watch three times a week. The baby knows that soap opera tune. And that feels joyful and pleasurable and makes you feel connected to the baby yourself. All of that's lovely. And that's what I mean by connection. But once you get it, there's the uncomfortable side of it. That means that if you cried a lot during your pregnancy, or the babies develop in a womb in a household where there's a lot of shouting and screaming, maybe domestic violence, then that's been wired into the baby's brain too. And that's scary to think about and to realize. And so when you really get it, it's always unsettling. So the first thing that I think is really helpful to know is just this idea of connection, but you need to walk with people while they really get it. I could give lots more examples and we might come back there. The second thing that I think is really valuable for people to know is that babies then go on to develop on the basis of the experiences that they have of other people because they're born connected. So the way you treat your baby becomes wired into their biology, into their stress system, into when they get anxious and when they calm down, it becomes wired into the neural pathways in their brain that will continue to grow. It becomes wired into their expectations about how the world works and their predictions about how social relationships, you know, communicative exchanges. Is that not fascinating? That the way people treat you becomes wired into your biology at a time before you will have any conscious memory of that. So before a baby can walk or talk or consciously remember, They have already worked out how trustworthy the world is, how trustworthy other people in the world are, and that's become woven into their biology, and the shorthand word for that is attachment. So, and that's where it really feeds into the trauma stuff that we now know, is that the way you are treated has an impact on your biology, and very often the way children are treated turns out to be in ways that are scary for them. And so we can come back to that if we want. But the third thing that I think is really valuable to know now that I've wound everybody up, I hope everybody listening to this is unsettled. I'm trying to unsettle us so that we pay more attention. But I'm also trying to talk about the fact that I'm purposely unsettling us so that that reduces the fear and so that people can get curious. Fiercely curious about this discomfort that I've created, and then step into it with curiosity. So, the third thing is a total relief. The most important thing I think we have learned about the attachment process is something called rupture repair. That if there are moments of rupture with your baby, with your child, with your partner, with your colleague, with a shopkeeper, the repair, the rupture is not what matters most in terms of long-term outcomes. Although that may be unsettling and uncomfortable in the moment, what matters most is the repair. Because then you learn that even if things are uncomfortable, it's not devastating. Mm-hmm. Even if you feel abandoned in the moment, they haven't abandoned you forever. But even if you feel uncertain and scared, they'll come back and comfort you. So the most valuable, like practical insight that all of this is gives for parents is that if you learn how to make up, if you learn how to say sorry, if you learn how to come back and say, I missed your feelings there, honey, tell me again. Then all the moments that you do miss won't matter. What matters is repair. And for lots of families, repair doesn't come easy. So it may not be something that happened in your family or that your parents could teach you, but it is never too late to learn. Mm -hmm. And knowing that one thing that repair matters more than rupture, or sometimes I put it this way, making up matters more than messing up. Once you know that, then you can feel relief about all these other scary things that we've learned and that I've talked about.
0: Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. It's so reassuring, isn't it, to know we can make mistakes when we will make mistakes and our children can have experiences that are difficult and challenging and scary and unpleasant and that we always have the power to come back to reconnect, to apologize, to, to refocus on the relationship and to know that we can undo when we make space to to give space to our children, well, so much of that adversity. It's very reassuring and it's very empowering for parents as well, isn't it, to know. And I love that that really counters a lot of what you were talking about, that blame, that shame, that guilt, when we know, yeah, it's okay, we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up again and again and again, and that's all right because we're going to keep coming back and we're going to keep apologizing and we're going to keep reconnecting. We're going to keep repairing and that's going to be enough. And it's interesting because like you say, most of us, never heard that in our childhood. So it is like learning to speak a new language, the language of repair, isn't it?
1: Josh, I can even make it better. Okay. Not only are we going to mess up, children need us to mess up. Relationships need us to mess up. If we want to use that language, We we might call it mismatches. Relationships need mismatches. It is the only way they can develop trust. I find this hugely reassuring. So, What the science shows us, and it comes from the baby science, but lots of therapists talk about rupture repair as well. So in other words, with grown-ups, and there are business leaders that talk about rupture and repair for how do you run a business team? So with your colleagues, okay, so let's go back to this idea. There will always be mismatches. And that mismatch or rupture, and they don't have to be big. Sometimes people think a rupture is a big fight. It It's not. It's just a moment of mismatch where I miss what you're saying, or I miss that something was significant for you, or I leave the room because I need to go to the loo. Suzanne, you're not supposed to talk about loo. We don't say those things in public. <laughs> but it turns out the parents need to go to the loo all the time. Right. And in fact, they sometimes the loo is the only place where they get any peace. Okay. Here's the trouble parents have if you have a baby that's like nine months old or a year old, the, you going to the loo will freak the baby out. Right. The baby is like, why have you left me? And you're like, I can't do any more attention to you because I'm full up and now I'm irritated and I'm impatient. And I just need some space for myself. So really, ordinary stuff can feel like a mis- like a mismatch to a baby. Does okay? So does that mean you never get to go to the loo again, or you never get any peace on your own, or you never you know you never get to tune back into you? No, this is the whole thing. This is why this is re- reassuring. It doesn't mean that. It means that if you have a mismatch, if you have timeout and it freaks out the baby, be sure that you come back and repair and pay attention to the baby's upset. And then what happens is the baby learns that when you go away to the loo, and they're a little bit scared in the moment because they're not sure that they're safe in this house without your presence, what they learn is you come back. And you say, honey, I'm so sorry. I know you were really upset about that. I really needed to go to the loo, but I hear that you're upset. Come and let me give you a cuddle. Then what the baby learns is that you didn't forget about them. You didn't, you still cared about them, even when they were upset. And then the baby is not so overwhelmed by their own fear and they can start to tolerate a little bit more and a little bit more fear because they know you'll come back because they know you'll pay attention to what they're feeling. And and our stress systems, when they're functioning really healthily in relationships, have a wide window of tolerance. We can tolerate quite a lot of uncomfortable feelings. But we develop that window of tolerance as a baby. In other words, do, do my parents care what I feel? Have they noticed? Are they coming back? If you learn that your parents don't pay attention to that, and Tons of babies learn that because the parents are busy, because their parents are tired, because the parents didn't know anything about this rupture, repair, emotion stuff, and they just see it as behavior. Then babies can learn that the parents don't pay attention to what they feel. So if you come back from that, Lou, you might say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I know. I can hear you're scared. Let's have a cuddle, which is what I just described. Or you might say, Will you knock off that behavior? There was nothing to cry about. I just went to the loo. I get that lots of parents are frustrated by babies who cry and they see the behavior. They don't understand that underneath that, the baby's crying. So both babies have been left and they're scared. But the one where the baby gets to make up will develop trust in their parents. And the one where the baby doesn't get an opportunity to feel heard and there's no making up, develops anxiety in their biology, and then they carry that with them. And I'll be frank, your teenage years are going to be harder if your baby learned not to trust you. So if we could talk to lots of parents to help them know this about the babies, then they can develop that in the time in which babies are really learning those, and you're not going to have to try to relearn that in later years, and if you didn't get this when you were a baby then you'll need to learn it in your adult years. So yeah. I just think people deserve to know it so that we can do it when babies are at the at the best place in life in order to receive that experience and build it into their
0: biology. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's a really integral part of the aware parenting approach to be talking, to be communicating, to be explaining and giving information to our babies and this piece around connection and listening to their feelings and allowing them space to cry with our loving support and our attention and our listening. Yeah, tell me all about it. Tell me more. That was really hard. I'm here. I'm listening. You're safe. And how that then supports our babies to to understand and make sense of the world and to feel this sense of safety and trust and connection and that they they can then release the the anxiety and the stress and the distress and return to the state of balance and calm. So I loved how you described that.
1: Josh, mm-hmm. let me add one other thing then. One of the reasons that it's hard for parents sometimes to do that is that they themselves get overwhelmed by a baby's crying. It's totally understandable. If babies cry a lot, it's tiring. Babies are really demanding of your attention. They're like all the time. They want your focus. And if they can't manage their own feelings, which they can't, they need you to handle their f- feelings. Being a parent of a baby is exhausting. So from that really compassionate place, if we can then get curious about, is meeting my baby's needs overwhelming for me? It can trigger real shame. Oh my God, I can't comfort my baby. My baby doesn't calm down when I when I cuddle them. Maybe I'm not very good at this. Maybe, Maybe maybe my baby doesn't like me. All of those thoughts you know, like circle, like sharks in the subconscious. And we may not even know that we're feeling that, but it triggers a response to our baby's behavior and our baby's feelings. And then we're not able to to help the baby because we're feeling overwhelmed. Mm. And so Understanding that we will be triggered by other people, including our own baby, I hope helps us to be a bit more forgiving and a bit more curious and to know that that's normal. And then if you can get, if you can step into that with fierce curiosity and go, okay, so what kind of help might I need so that I don't feel accused by my baby, so that I don't feel so Upset by my by wondering, am I good enough at this? We've got this idea that parents need to be perfect, and it hasn't helped us. No baby wants a perfect parent. That's not what they're looking for. That's our needs to be a perfect parent. And social media has made all of that worse. No baby wants a perfect parent. What a baby wants is a parent who's interested in how they're feeling, who can come back on the moments that they miss it and who likes their company. Mm. Babies want parents who like them yes, and can withstand the moments in which you don't really like your baby and especially can withstand the moments in which your baby doesn't like you either. And the whole thing doesn't fall apart in fear and dismay. Babies don't want perfect parents. They want parents who will pay attention to how they feel.
0: Yes, I think that's such a beautiful message, isn't it? Around, again, coming back to that imperfection is okay and imperfection is is part of parenting. And that actually what we want to be doing is modeling to our children as they grow up to become adults themselves, to know in their bodies that it, it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes. And and that sort of expectation of, of always being able to do the right thing is is not only unrealistic, it's really detrimental to, to your well-being. So I really love that we're modeling that to our children as we're learning to Offer it to ourselves.
1: And the idea that we're modeling it so they can see the behavior and they can see what that way of being looks like, and that all of that is being woven into biology. It's not only the way that we model, but also the way that we treat children. Sometimes when we use the language of modeling, it sounds a wee bit like babies are in an audience and they're watching the world around them being modeled. And Babies are not watching the world. Babies are part of the world. Sometimes it sounds like a theater play. Babies are sitting watching as if the world were a play and they're in the audience. It doesn't work that way at all. Babies think they are in the play. Whatever is happening around them, they think is happening to them because they come into the world connected. They experience everything as about them, as connected to everything that is happening around them. And they ha- sometimes we call that egocentric. Babies have to be egocentric because they don't really know how the world works yet. So they need to make sense of the world in relation to themselves. There's no other way for them to make sense of it. So they think they are the masters of everything, they think they are responsible for everything, they think they are in charge of everything. And when it feels bad, they think they caused the bad feeling in their body. So let me give another uncomfortable example, which is really common today. Until about 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a mobile phone and no such thing as social media. So for the whole of evolutionary history of human babies, their parents did not have in their pocket the most excellent distraction device but today's parents do. So today's babies often experience their parents' attention diverted to something else. And the babies think they caused it. They think it's about them. So if they feel sore about the fact their parent dipped out in the middle of that conversation, their parents' attention shifted away, and that feels bad or scary for the baby, The babies think they caused it. They think they did something to make you turn away. They think you don't like them. They think it's about them. They have no idea that there's this thing called a mobile phone that the designers of that wanted to make you addicted to by going ding, 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 so it sets off the dopamine in your brain. So that means that all the babies in today's world are having different experiences than a generation ago. And it's not a comfortable one. And Mm -hmm. how do we tell parents that so that they can think more about how they use mobile phones while they're around their babies, without making parents feel guilty and beating themselves up or deciding that that's so uncomfortable they don't like me because they don't like what I'm trying to find a way to say, because they had no idea that their baby was watching them so closely and was so monitoring them so closely and was so hanging on the word of every single you know, hanging on every single tiny thing they do. If you don't know that's how tuned a baby is, you might not have any idea that they have feelings about the fact that you've just checked your messages or just gone to the loo or just left them in the trolley while you went to the other end of the aisle to get nappies. They might not have any idea that the baby has feelings about that,
0: which will show up in what we call behavior. Wow. So interesting. So what what do you think then are the most important things for, for parents to understand in terms of you know, reducing adversity for children? Obviously, our, our world is not set up to be supporting parents really. And we're trying to do this impossibly difficult task, mostly on our own with all the other stresses of our modern lives. But what, what do you think are some of the important things in terms of reducing adversity and trauma then for children? Oh, you say some really important things there.
1: Our world is no longer set up for supporting young families. Some countries may be doing better at that than others. Norway and the Scandinavian countries are doing a lot better than Anglo countries like Britain and America and Australia. So if we think about what does a parent need in order to be present for their baby, And although I probably have said mothers quite a bit, the same applies to fathers and carers. So what do you need in order to be present for a baby who will often be exhausting? Yes, sometimes a joy, lots of joy, but also exhausting. What do you need in order to help to sustain you to be present for the baby? You too will need support. So parents need a good support network and lots of them don't have it so one thing you can do in fact probably the most important thing you can do is not strive to be a better parent do not strive to be a more perfect parent stop worrying about all the things you think you got wrong i don't mean that baby's feelings are not important i don't mean that paying attention to connection is not important. I do not mean that. But what I mean is that piling more pressure on yourself is very likely just to make you feel worse and more tired. Instead, get yourself a good support network so that you can say to somebody, the baby's doing my head in today. So that you, you might trust them enough to say, do you think I've got enough repair going on when you when we had tea with me and the baby last week at, the ca- at that cafe. So that you hopefully will have people who will come in and cuddle the baby sometimes when you need to go for a sleep. All of that used to be part of the way in which tribes supported new families in raising babies. It, in traditional cultures, which we all were once early in our evolutionary history, Tribes raised babies, not nuclear families. There were lots of pairs of arms to help with babies. In today's world, in our neoliberal world, where we ask parents to go out to work, to give their babies to childcare, where very often the ratio may not be great, and where uh, it can take the baby a while to come to trust these new people. And where lots of people don't know that a transition period is needed so the baby can decide whether these new people are trustworthy or not. When we just see childcare as a service and not another relationship, the baby thinks it's a relationship. The world that we're living in now doesn't support parents in the way that they need supported so that they can give care to their babies. So understand that you are doing something that doesn't work in today's world. And then if it feels hard, you'll know why. And then figure out, can you put that in place for yourself? How can you get yourself a network? And secondly, what can you do to be more self-compassionate to yourself? So trying hard to take care of your needs for sleep, of, of your needs for connection, of your needs to have your favorite ice cream. If you are able to take care of your own needs, then you are less likely to feel overwhelmed by the baby. Mm. And figuring out what that looks like is different for every family and for every set of parents. I hope it feels empowering for parents to hear you are allowed to figure out what works for you. And not everybody will thank you for that. Some people will feel offended. Some people will feel guilted because you're not doing it the way they're doing it. But you are allowed to figure out what works for you. And if you pay attention to the baby's need to have their feelings heard, and you keep in mind that there will be mismatches, and as long as you've got repair, you'll be okay. Mm.
0: It's such an empowering message for parents, isn't it, to... to say, you know, no wonder it's hard, no wonder it feels impossible. And to have encourage parents to be more compassionate with themselves about that. And this vital piece around getting support for ourselves as being getting that network set up for ourselves, whatever that looks like, whatever you can find and whatever you can make work is the single most important thing probably that you can do to be, to be the parent that your baby needs you to be. I, I really love that message. I think that's really nice. And the importance of caring for ourselves in the process, because so often we that's we just totally neglect ourselves in that. And then, of course, you can't give from an empty cup and it's it just doesn't work, does it? So I really love that message. And it's
1: not just partly we end up doing that because so often the message is here about it becomes what should individual parents and individual families do? when really to go back to your point about the world we need to set up a world that supports parents in doing that so we need a collective approach to this we need to think about communities we need to pay attention to how exhausting poverty is or how exhausting a work schedule that doesn't that uses up all your energy is or what it's like to have childcare where you feel blamed as a parent rather than supported as a parent, what if we called it family care, rather than child care, that would change the way we all oriented to it, including the staff in those settings. So I don't always know what to do about changing the collective around individual families. But it feels really important to me to make the point that our core problems are not the individual families are not somehow able to attune to their babies. It's this much wider economic, social
0: context, and we need to place these problems within that. I love that. Yes. Thank you for saying that. I think that's really, really important. I'm aware of the time, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I would love to ask you, you talk about how connection matters at every stage of life, from babies right through to seniors. What would you like to say about connection that you think is important to understand?
1: Okay, I'll say something that I think is both fascinating and unsettling, which I, I mean, that's just my mantra. The trust that you learn as a baby in those early years before you can walk or talk or remember. The expectations that you come to have of communicative exchanges, what relationships feel like, and then the way that becomes wired into your biology. That's called attachment or attachment styles. That stays wired into your body through the whole of your life which is fascinating and unnerving now i don't mean that if it's if it's problematic if it's scary if it's uncomfortable i don't mean you can't make it better but unless you do something to make it better it stays in your body and particular kinds of experiences or settings or situations or people are likely to trigger that so if you have some core anxieties about relationships and you're in a setting or a relationship that triggers those patterns in your biology, then they're still there. So for some people, a parting is really scary. So if we go back to the uh, the story of the baby in the loo, there are lots of people who are now made unnerved because they don't get a reply to their text. So if I turn that into a funny story, let's say you're now in love and you've moved in together and you text your partner and you go... I'm texting you, darling, to tell you I love you. Kiss, 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 kiss. And you don't get a reply. Hi, darling. I I texted you 10 minutes ago. Did you get my kiss? I hope you, uh, did you get my text? hope you have a great day at work. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Did you get the text that I've been sending for the last half hour? I'd really love to hear from you, kiss. And three hours later, I'm glad you're laughing. I'm trying to make it a funny story. And here's the thing, there will be people listening to this, they recognize that. So that three hours later, by the time you finally hear from your beloved, you are so filled with anxiety about that silence and that gap and that absence. And your body has decided that they have forgotten about you. You've been abandoned. They don't love you anymore. And they've ignored you. By the time they get in touch, you're in a really different place and you may well explode with anger. That's an attachment style. Weathering those absences, those gaps is too hard for your body. Now your relationship is on the way perhaps to ending if your partner can't make sense of what they experience as extreme behavior. I could give lots of those examples. I'm trying to give one that sounds a bit silly, but is real for lots of people and didn't exist before texts and phones that helps us to think, oh my God, that's wired into my body. You can make that better, but not if you don't get this kind of information that we're talking about here. And then if we move all the way to the senior years, here's one other fascinating bit of information that I wish more people had. We now know that with dementia, the symptoms of dementia, the behavioral symptoms, often map on to the attachment style that you developed as a baby. So it's still in your body. And if we made that information available to the people who work in care homes and to the families who are coping with the terrible situation that advanced dementia is, they would be comforted and they could provide comfort. They would know better how to provide comfort to the person with dementia that they're caring for. So you could comfort the anx- the anxieties, or you could make better sense of some of the shutdown if you realize that this is about emotional anxiety about their experiences as a baby. It's a whole new world that opens up in in terms of dementia care. There's lots of research that now makes sense of that those early connections, but people in care homes don't get taught this, and people in families don't have access to it. So the thing I would just say about connection is that it becomes wired into your biology, and it lasts through the whole of your lifetime, which is why paying attention to babies' feelings matters for the whole of their
0: lifetime. It's profound. It certainly is. It certainly is. Wow. Gosh, thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. Is there anything else, I mean, you obviously can't share all of your knowledge and wisdom in a one-hour conversation, but is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't mentioned so far yet in this one?
1: Uh, When people ask for advice, I often don't like giving advice, but given that I've now dropped that in myself, if people here want advice, uh, the one piece of advice I would give is laugh as much as you can. Laughter is like a repair. When you're laughing in a relationship, you can't be scared. Your body no longer thinks the saber-toothed tigers have snuck into the room are going to eat you. Your body moves into a teddy bear state because you're relaxed and connected to the people in the room with you. You don't laugh in the middle of a fight. You laugh at the end of it when you have time to reflect on what happened. So, Pay attention to laughter. Stoke that in your family. Have jokes at the table as a regular ritual. We treat laughter as sometimes something obvious and sweet. We don't really think it's really important. But laughter is what will act as an umbrella over all the difficult times. And if you have a bank of laughter behind you, you'll be able to take out some of the investment that you've made in the times that are hard. So pay attention to laughter and stoke that. And I like talking about that because when you hear that, you're like, "Every really, seriously, laughter? Yeah. It feels like, okay, I could do that in the midst of difficult lives. So go laugh more.
0: I love that advice. It's so profoundly healing and it's so good for us physically and, and mentally and emotionally to be laughing. And yeah, it's something that we can do and you know there's all those beautiful videos on on the internet of babies laughing a lot and when their parents do something and it's i remember the sound of my baby laughing the first time that he really laughed it's just a beautiful connecting and it's such a powerful antidote to the serious business of and the serious responsibility of of raising children so bringing in more laughter is just yeah it's it's beautiful thank you for ending with that so if people want to find out more about you and your work, what what do you what how can people get hold of you? Where where can they come and watch your would you like to share about your film? What would you like to say? If you go to the Connected Baby website, which
1: is connectedbaby.net, uh, we have a small range of resources there that are meant to communicate this. So we've got my book on saber-tooth tigers and teddy bears. We've got the film that you're mentioning, The Connected Baby. You can now stream that. And it's well over a decade old now, but that film is full of videos of babies connecting and of me narrating it so that people can see more clearly. You often cannot see babies connecting in real time because things move too fast, so in that film, which is a documentary film, it's about a, a little over an hour long. So maybe it's great for CPD or great for an evening on the couch. It lets you see connection slowed down. And sometimes I think that we just need more videos of babies connecting. Maybe we don't need me to talk so much. We need to show videos of babies connecting. We've also got resources there for early years, staff, staff for a drop-off and pick-up at nursery, again, to show babies connecting and when they get anxious and then when they start to recover, because drop-off and pick-up are the most important points in a baby's day in childcare, and we often don't realize that. So uh, the Connected Baby website gives you some resources and tells you about events that we're doing. And I guess the other thing is that if you just Google, I, I mean, I'm all over YouTube now, uh, which I find that's a weird thing to have in life to be all over YouTube, but I will not be the only one. But for a scientist to to know that this information is reaching folks, it is sometimes really striking for me to think, okay, so all those YouTube clips are really helping other people to get this. So if if you want to hear more from me, just have a Google and you will find me talking about all, not just babies, but talking about trauma, Talking about adult experiences of all of this and trying to help people to realize that I'm not just talking babies. I'm really talking about the impact of childhoods rather than people who are in those childhoods at the moment. In other words, people can think children, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not, I don't work with children. But if you spend time with other people, they were all a child once and we all have the impacts of what happened to us there.
0: Oh, thank you so much for making time to come and talk to us and share some of your knowledge and expertise on this. It's been a really, really powerful and interesting, fascinating conversation. So I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I,
1: it's been a great conversation.
0: Thank you for joining me on Aware Parenting Stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more, please visit my website www.awareparenting.com.au and follow me on social media at Aware Parenting with Joss. I wish you much connection and love on your parenting adventures.